Hey, Ryan, how are you? I see him. What's up, Norton? It's been a while. How are you doing? Doing okay. Doing okay. You you let your hair grow, huh? Yep. I'm on a streak of no haircuts. Wow. Because uh, COVID is over? No, that was because COVID had started. I, had, I hadn't got a haircut since March of, uh, probably like March 7th, 2020. At least you have hair. I have none, so. Well, there's that. Yeah. So, Ryan, <laughs> the, the, the still picture that you've got uh, with your hair that way, you know what song immediately popped in my head? <laughs> what? Mm bop, boop da bop, bop, boop bop. <laughs> Well, I hope it. I hope it. Um, you look like a Hanson brother. Hope my. I hope my look evolves from from the Hanson brothers to something with more depth and gravitas. You're going for uh, either uh, uh, Dave Grohl or <laughs> um, uh, what's his name? Uh, I forget. I would. I would. I would settle for Wayne Coyne. Of the flaming lips. That's is that your genre look. of music? That's the look I, I would settle for. He's you know, got, he's got the graying hair. He's a little scruffy. You know, when when I was driving back from Dickinson after seeing the concert, I, I realized there's one topic that we've never discussed in any of our meetings: is what kind of music you were playing into slash whatever you were doing. It was, um, I, I guess it's. The stuff I did in New York was like indie rock stuff, and um, and I do like experimental, ambient music, and some free jazz, uh, but it's just more like noise rock, really, and uh, and then some classic classic rock, country rock stuff as well. So all with firmly within a, a a rock, indie rock genre, I'd say. Okay, and that's where it. Where it stays. <laughs> that's where I've. That's so, where I've so, 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 if you had to uh, pigeonhole yourself into a a uh, set of of artists, where would you say you're at? Recognize recognizable artists. Indie rock means all sorts of things. So, <laughs> well, um, I guess uh, pavement would probably be close. But pavement's really good. I'm probably not that good. But pa pavement esque. So that was like late '90s, uh, all the way to who's similar today. Um, car seat headrest, maybe. Even though he's awesome, I would not want to compare myself at all to him. But similar, similar in the genre sense. So I like to think that I know obscure bands, but I don't know either one of those. <laughs> you don't know pavement. No. Come on, man. What? Maybe I know something by them. It's one of those things. Yeah, I'm sure you you would recognize. Well, I mean, it says like the late '90s, right before the '90s died, really. Is right, I mean. right. Which is my that's my era. <laughs> I like late '90s. I I will go to any one hit wonder concert from the late '90s that's around. Yeah, so I guess Flaming Lips would be close. They're kind of in there. Um, guided by Voices. Um, okay. Blur, a little blur. Uh, late, later blur when they got more experimental. Mm. And, uh, hmm. 
I mean, like the the old ref, the old uh, references would be like the Flaming or um, Velvet Underground, Bob okay. Dylan, Beatles, stuff like that. Okay, that makes more sense. Modern Lovers. Mm. Norton, are, are those any of those older bands familiar to you? Are any of those bands? You well, listen to much music. Flaming Lips. I stopped really caring about you know. I never did care about the late 90s stuff. I was, uh, I liked grunge, of course. I was, uh, you know. You're in Seattle, Seattle. at the time, right? Uh, yeah, so uh, Nirvana was great. Beck was great. Uh, yeah, Beck. Every, every Nirvana, Beck. you know, um, Soundgarden, all those I really got into for a long time. I love Beck because uh, I'm a loser baby, so why don't you kill me, you know? <laughs> Beck is still great. Beck is still fabulously Beck. productive. Oh, I yeah, I, I'll listen to anything that he's got coming along. So yeah, I I also am very much I like jazz, uh, good jazz, not crappy jazz, but really good <laughs> solid jazz. I like it. So so what 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 era is your is your good jazz versus crappy jazz? All eras, as long as it's good jazz. You know what I'm saying? I just like uh, jazz that's got people that have got heart into it. So it's not not any era. It's just when I hear good jazz, I just really enjoy good jazz. So I couldn't even tell you what bands I listen to. I just listen to it all day long. So well, I was thinking like um, Miles Davis would probably be in that. Miles Davis. List. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, Thelonious Monk. Yep. I, I love Thelonious Monk uh, forever. And um, so I just like really good, solid, you know, where they're, I don't know, where they're passionate about it. And you could tell. Yeah, anyway, I don't like fake jazz. So whatever that is. Fusion. Yeah. Everything that happened in the 80s. <laughs> 80s suck for music. So. <laughs> 80s was great for other music, but not jazz. Not great. Yeah, not 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 great for jazz. No, no. I, yeah. I always hated until I turned about 35. I always hated 80s music, and now I find myself cranking it up all the time. I don't know what that means. Especially Huey Lewis. I don't know. Is it is it even possible to not crank up Huey Lewis when it comes on? <laughs> yeah, it is possible to not crank. Up. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go even deeper. I'll go a deeper cut. I've been listening the last couple of weeks pretty nonstop to Hollow Notes. Ah! Oh, God. 1981 album. It's a classic. I'm going to recommend all our listeners go go after this. They go out and they, they listen to Hollow Notes 1981. Gonna... That's sad name? music. No, it's great music. This is great music. You, I think you would even, I think you'd even be dancing. I'm talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've private eyes. Come on, private eyes. Yeah. It's got, it's got a whole n another layer of relevance now in in the 2000s. Everything's been privatized, and we're under surveillance all the time. So it's got all these layers, guys. And in harmonies, all, all the songs in the late 80s and early 90s about stalking. Oh remember, God, yeah. remember all those police yeah there was like four or five major songs creep, that were all about creepy as, creepy as heck you know mm -hmm. somebody's watching you that was a good song that uh, michael jackson wrote for another artist 
course Michael Jackson wrote it. <laughs> talking Heads are a very solid 80s band. We cannot disparage the Talking Heads. So you guys know how, remember how like after Biggie Smalls died, his crew like did some kind of, they, they sampled that police song about stalking? Every Breath You Take. Yeah, I could never, ever with that uh, because I was like, oh, my God, no, this is a song about stalking, not about genuine family love. Like, what the, you know, I just I couldn't go for what they were going for. They're basically saying I miss you to a dead person. But like the song is about being a creep and I could just <laughs> never I could never get into it because I'm just like, no, the, the whole the whole vibe is a totally different message. And I'm I'm not I'm totally fine with artists sampling and, and, and riffing off each other and reinvention but um don't bring a stalkery behavior into your mourning of uh, the loss of your friend that's super weird to me you're your dissing junior mafia i'm not i we better, I we better listen, watch out ellie i'm listening. not dissing junior mafia i still listen to <laughs> that album what is it called oh man conspiracy or or something which one um i think the album's called conspiracy by junior mafia okay uh yeah it's um some good beats on that thing well you know if, if you really listen to the words of like 60s music it's all about going after really young girls which is really if, if you, yeah <laughs> if you sample any of that stuff back then it's like 17 and you know 16 and really creepy stuff if you really listen to the lyrics it's like Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis really had an impact, didn't he? <laughs> well, I, I and Elvis, and Elvis for that matter, and, and Elvis, absolutely. But I never heard a fourteen. You know, sixteen <laughs> seems to be the cutoff. But uh, I, I never heard a fourteen-year-old girl getting uh, sung about. So, I don't know. Yeah, well, the, you can go back any time, and it's the about songs about women are always a little rapey. Well, the teenagers in that era became really the, the driving cultural force. So I guess it wasn't surprising that a lot of the songs were aged at, or aimed at underage people because they were driving the economy. That was the, That's what really opened up that era from an oh, economic wow. standpoint was how the, the teenagers buying power and able to uh, kind of shift the cultural focus away from what their parents were listening to, what, to what they were listening to. Well, if you think like Neil, I mean, uh, there's really very few artists of that era that were are considered more wholesome than Neil Diamond and you know, girl, you'll be a woman soon is right in that category. <laughs> <laughs> what, which, which, which one was the worst? Oh God. There were, it was just recent that it came on. Um, oh, and then I heard it and it was like, Oh geez, that's terrible. Um, God, Chuck Berry, <laughs> ding-a-ling. Oh, maybe that's it too. That was a bad one. Yeah, yeah. But I, I just, uh, okay. Anyway, the one, I guess that's why I said it because it really struck me when I heard it the other day. For some reason, I was, you know, listening to uh, the, the the access radio. I always listen to that, and some of the stuff they put on is just goofy. So. This is why the Baptists were against dancing and. <laughs> why Footloose had to be created. 
Well, I, I, uh, I want to welcome everyone here to the No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner. I'm joined by Dustin and Ellie. We've got a special guest, Norton. Norton, I'm glad you're joining us today because I know you lived in Seattle. And um, my check-in thought kind of re- revolves around, in a tangential way, Seattle people. So I, I would love you to be able to respond to it. And I'll, I'll get started right now. It's been a couple of weeks since we spoke, and uh, I guess it's been a kind of a depressing summer if you look at outside <laughs> in North Dakota. It's, it seems like every other day or almost oh, every day now, we're getting the wildfire smoke from somewhere in the world, uh, Montana, Canada, California, Washington. And uh, <clears throat> you, can t- you can taste it in the air. I mean, I can feel it in my lungs, and now uh, you can see it in the horizon. It's just, uh, it's kind of an all-encompassing menace. It's kind of like we're in that meme, this is fine, where the, the dog's in a room and it's on fire and it's got a little caption that says, this is fine. That's what it feels like this summer. This is the, this is fine summer, uh, where just all these climate-related things are coming together. And uh, and hopefully that it's changing some of, um, some of our awareness. And uh, the reason I, I think of Seattle is I was reading a article in the Washington Post, it was about people in the, in the Seattle area, the upper North, Pacific Northwest, uh, refusing, absolutely refusing to buy air conditioners. And because it was, um, it's one of the selling points of people that live in that part of the country, and it has been for almost 100 years, is that um, the temperate weather, you don't need an air conditioner, you don't need, um, you know, winter clothing. Uh, like you do in North Dakota or, or air conditioning like you need uh, in North Dakota <laughs> or in Texas. Uh, so they had this real kind of self-image all, all around um, nature and temperateness. And so when, when they had these, um, the, the thermal cap or heat cap or whatever that thing was called that created many days of 100 degrees weather in places that hadn't experienced that for a long time and, and almost rarely do. There were people there that were, uh, well, first of all, the people that wanted to buy air conditioners couldn't get them because there weren't enough around and not enough skilled techs to put them in on a short notice. And then there are a bunch of people in this article who are refusing to do it because it went against their self-image and their identity. And they weren't the kind of people <laughs> that, uh, that use air conditioning. And uh, it was just a, a very interesting article to contrast with, uh, which I would consider the greater global reaction to climate change, which is we're, we're, uh, it's too big to think about. Even if you uh, think it's a bad thing, it's too, too, too big to think about. We don't know how to think about it. And um, people that are in 100 degree days and they can't even stand to be in their own house, don't even want to think about it to the extent of putting air conditioning in their house um, or you know, getting a, um, a window unit or something small. And uh, wow, well, it's, it's such a... Well, it's such a crazy time. Norton, you lived out there. I'm sure you, so, you uh, that was part of the, the reason you liked it um, and people liked it. What are we going to do? Well, here, here, here's the thing. Uh, I, I never, we never had air conditioning. Um, I lived there 34 years, never had air conditioning, never needed it. And uh, you're, you're right. There, there's a certain, I, I would hope that the people who are resistant to it, I'd like to if you could link me that, I'd like to see it because yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that they're doing it for the right reasons, which is air conditioning absolutely adds to the global warming. I mean, it's like people using air conditioning are 
you know, just as evil as people who are driving SUVs in a way. And, uh, you know, I use air conditioning because I'm got it and it's there, but I, I, I know I'm a part of the problem. So um, this has been going on since the 70s. I mean, when you look at Jimmy Carter, our most dis- abused president by the Republican world, uh, who was, you know, looked at as a failed presidency, and you look at what he said in 1970, we, it's all coming home to roost now. I mean, the MIT did a very extensive analysis of our resources, our finite resources, and the way our environment was going. And they said by the year 2040, um, it'll be the end. The, the, the resources will, out, will, will not be there anymore. And that is a really scary and very real concept right now because this is not going away. This is, we, we have, um, you know, in, in a certain aspect, you know, you can say all you want about let's fight for global changes, environmental changes to halt global warming. But in a certain extent, this MIT um, letter or this this uh, report indicated that we've reached a tipping point, and that's what's so frightening. And that's why people just have to accept the fact that we have an environmental crisis, and that should be the top of everybody's list of stuff instead of whether or not people are wearing masks or whether or not there's... Uh, you know, the election's been stolen or any of anything else, we should all be looking at our environment and saying, you know, we're, we're, we're killing our future generations. So, Hey guys, I noticed that Jim has joined us. Um, so hi, Jim. Thanks for joining. I I actually want to, um, bring in Jim to this discussion. Um, and, and Ryan too, you know, Norton, you raised kids like a while ago, but some of us are raising them right now. And I'm curious about what the other parents on the call, what are they teaching their children about these issues, the very issues you're discussing, um, Norton? Because I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I live this like weirdly lonely life where I am not the literally the only adult, but kind of the main adult for sure in my stepdaughter's lives who tells them the future that's actually coming for them, like the true shitty reality. Um, And I'm trying to get them to understand like lowering consumption to anticipate that kind of, you know, inconvenience, shortage, whatever. You just can't keep being so wasteful. I'm curious what, what do you, uh, the, parents of younger children on the call, what do you guys do? Or your kids are quite young at this time. So do you even go there yet? I'll let you weigh in, Jim, first. What's up, Jim? You might be on mute because we don't hear you. He is muted. You are muted. Well, I've got, I can kind of kick in. I've got two grandkids uh, living in Washington and well, they're living in Oregon now, but they'll be living in Washington soon. Um, 
and they're aware that we're an environmental crisis and they're doing and they're and my daughter is doing what she can to have a more sustainable situation but no matter what she does or they do if we keep driving SUVs and F-150s and uh, fossil fuel, burning fossil fuel and burning coal and eating meat, none of this is going to really be resolved for their satisfaction. Nothing we can say to them is going to say, you've got a future just like I had a future. And that's what's so, in my, I'm a grandfather, and that's what's so I, I guess it's made me uh, more aware because I do have grandchildren. And I think every- But what do those no, conversations look like? Like, like what is the actual like, like terminology or perspective that one is sharing with the children as they discuss this? Like, I'm more interested in actually the well, communication- I, I, I try to- talk to them as I would an adult. They're 13 and 11, and I try to be as open with them as possible about the environment, about why the heat in Seattle is different than it ever has been in the past. And, you know, I, I mean, but on the other hand, Jim, you can probably, you know, understand, you don't want to scare the shit out of them either. You know, you, you, you don't want to say to them, you just got nothing to look forward to. And that's, that's what scares me about this whole environmental crisis is uh, how do you possibly say anything that's going to make it feel right? That scares me. Yeah. You can't think about it. There's no way to think about it. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's hard to communicate it to children. Uh, we, we don't even have the vocabulary as adults to con conceptualize it. So um, I, um, I'll answer your question, Ellie. It's an interesting question. I mean, no, but, but um, I was just going to say for uh, Norton had brought up the MIT study. So yeah, the MIT study um, was recently revisited to see if their um, assumptions and, and projections we're holding in line from the 1970s. And it turns out, yes, they are. <laughs> we're still uh, on the path to ruin. Um, so they, they had modeled out three different scenarios, um, you know, three potential civilizational collapse, collapsing um, circumstances. So resource scarcity, not enough things to go around, um, population overgrowth, too many people uh, and not enough resources. And then the third was pollution, environmental collapse. And so the, the resource scarcity and, and population growth didn't turn out to be as bad as, as we had um, anticipated in the 70s. We've actually got a kind of a, an era of abundance to a certain degree, um, at least material abundance and junk and plastic and stuff. Um, and then the population growth kind of um, people just start having um, less babies as they become um, more developed and have access to electricity. Actually, the access to electricity and, and um, population are linked intimately for, for a weird reason. So those two things didn't happen, but the pollution thing totally happened. <laughs> and uh, so the projection is after 2030, well, the economy will be unable to grow because of the, the constraints um, placed upon it by pollution and environmental calamity. And so the growth will stop in 2030. And then by 2040, uh, yeah, bad things happen. I, I don't know if they put a name to it, but it was like uh, collapse, I think is what they call yeah. it. Collapse is what they call it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, whatever that means. So uh, to answer Ellie's question, um, 
No, I, I guess we we talk about certain things. Um, my oldest is seven, so there's not too much um, high level um, things we're talking about for the environment. But we are talking a lot about the practical things, which would be resiliency, self-reliance, being able to take care of yourself and your um, friends and family. Um, so having you know certain life skills to prepare for whatever that collapse looks like. Um, you know, so whether that's practical um, building, growing, um, sustainable skills to take, uh, you know, to be able to garden, to be able to grow crops, your own food. Um, so all that, all that, uh, the simple stuff that, uh, you know, if things do collapse, you'll want to have all that kind of ready to go and, and well, well practiced and well skilled. And so, yeah, just more of a practical thing. Like we got to be prepared for, yeah, whatever is going to come. Cause yeah, there'll be, this will be the, that'll be their prime. Is the I like that. I think that's really smart. And I think you have a good kind of intuitive understanding of human nature, I think, which is that it's extremely flexible. And it's about honing our skills as adaptive, nimble, capable uh, beings um, that helps us prepare for a variety of circumstances. And it's being unable to be flexible is, I would think, really holds us back. And I wanted just to introduce you to the nightmare of my life for a hot second. So I, I have the same goal as you in that regard, but just imagine if in your life you had a co-parent from your spouse's ex-spouse who was undermining this process for you at every moment, trying to, that whole family, trying to make the children incapable and immature and spoiled and, you know, just not expected to develop like, appropriately developmentally it's it's really rough and so i know there's this tough future ahead um but there are cultural forces um or like like family cultural forces or or family there's certain family structures that exist that have like sort of roles for people in the family and certain behaviors that they bring out i see some patterns is what i'm trying to say but there's a family dynamic that is actually trying to keep children very incapable or you know, not really, not really bothering to make them into well-prepared adults, and it's it's shocking to me. But it just seems very out of place in the modern era, and is like utterly in denial of reality entirely. And I am like, I know what I can't offer the girls something better than what I had. I know it's going to be worse, but like at least I I want to offer them as much as possible. You know. Well, I was uh, speaking with a. Uh, teacher at Valley, Valley City State, uh, the college in Valley City, and uh, she was talking about the young people that are entering into college and how naive and how uninformed and how sad it is that they really don't have any picture of um, anything but their own needs. And I, and I asked her, I said, so what can change that? And she said, well, as far as she's concerned, um, there has to be a huge cultural shift. And I said, <laughs> there's no way. I mean, everybody kind of expected this Biden win to be some kind of cultural shift. But all it feels to me like is it's a blip in the in the continue in the continued tra trajectory that we're on. 
I, I, I don't. We said I, that I, on this. We said that on this podcast. We we literally said that that it would not actually reflect much of a change. Um, no, no. Yeah, it's just a blip. It's just a little little blip, and then what's going to happen is the trajectory is going to continue, and the only way it's going to stop. No, I don't even want to go there. So, well, I mean, so I agree that we're still in the in a. <laughs> In a trajectory, we are we are we are on the unsustainable tra- trajectory. And to me, I think the M- the MIT report actually put in uh, put in there exactly what is the conversation we should be having, which is it's not a environmental conversation; it's an economic one. We have to move away from the infinite growth model because it's unsustainable. And so they're saying by twenty thirty, the, the economy can't grow anymore. It's going to be it's going to be stuck. And we, you know, we'll see. We're pretty, we're pretty innovative about monetizing things. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to twenty thirty five. Um, Maybe may virtual reality is where they'll start monetizing stuff. But um, I think, and this is where the, this is where I criticize the Democrats. You know, we're having this infrastructure debate on the national level now, uh, and and there are there is a needed infrastructure that's not been repaired um, for a long time. That's um, dangerous to be out there in the world. So I'm not saying infrastructure is bad, but I'm saying the conversation isn't about building our way out of climate change. It's about stopping the growth. <laughs> so, or, you know, it's, I guess there's different, different ways to do it. Do you want to have a sustainable growth model where it's um, you know managed to a degree? Or do you want to have a degrowth model where you actually um, say, hey, uh, let's just stop doing as much stuff as we, we do. Um, and you know whether that's a smaller work week, fewer work hours, um, you know, more automation so people don't have to work. Everything's automated and we have a universal basic income. And then uh, people are on their own um, and they have to work 20, 10 to 20 hours a week versus 30 to 40. And the economy just does less and less is produced, but we're happier and more flourishing and, and sustainable. Um, that's the conversation we need to be having. Uh, the stuff about like, uh, let's build back green and all this other crap. Uh, well, no, I don't think that's going to do it. That's just going to build a different set of problems. But it's the growth is is what uh, is at the heart and um, and what will bec- become the limit that we run up against in 2030 if this MIT report is accurate. And and the growth based economy is actually the debt based economy. Yep. It, it is it, frankly the first step to doing what you want is doing what Ron Paul wanted to do and getting rid of the Federal Reserve. That would be the first step in fixing that problem because the entire banking system is based off of accumulating more and more debt. It's a pyramid scheme and a Ponzi yep. scheme. And and so you the the system does not allow for anything other than that continuous growth rate to continuously increase. Uh, whether it's natural, organic, or artificial, which most of it in the last 30 years has been artificial. Right. Uh, you're in, instead of, you know, th- this is when people talk about wage stagnation. Why is there wage stagnation? Because there's easy credit. If there wasn't such easy credit, people would demand to get paid more. But because people can get a $5,000 credit card and a uh, a $12,000 car loan two weeks after clearing bankruptcy. Uh, I know this personally. Uh, there's there's no push for people to demand higher wages. And, and the entire system is based off of getting people back into debt. 
You're 100% right, Dustin. The the other aspect other than the, the debt, um, so my, my connection from 2.05 p.m. wasn't allowing me to talk, so I got back off and got on at 2.15, and now it's letting me unmute. But um, the other aspect of that debt is growth model, is that our model now is based on war. And that's what GDP was created during. GDP was created in a time to be able to measure how well and how quick the economy would react and survive in war. So um, how many trees can we cut down? How many things can we mine? How many things can we destroy in order to build enough war machines and weapons and feed enough warriors to win the war? So if you have a forest, it has zero value. until you have cut it all down and turned it into boats and then the forest is worth something but now you have nothing left so um, there's a lot of people in the world that are arguing that you got to get rid of gdp because it's the economic model that drives our entire economic engine of the planet now and it's the economic model that forces us to destroy everything in order to give it value the the opposite model that they've worked out really well is that if you have a huge forest, you get credit for having that forest. And you get credit for all the oxygen you're creating, all the animals you're creating, um, biodiversity in there, the habitats in there, all the life that can be harvested from that forest, from having that healthy. And then you take that model towards everything, towards workers. It's not how quickly you can destroy your worker and how many hours you can squeeze out of them, it's how healthy can you keep your worker. Um, to drive up the productivity in a natural way. And, and so, you know, until GDP goes down, and as well as you said with the debt uh, model, there's not a lot of hope. The, the only thing that I, uh, I can possibly see that would actually work would be that we have a new version of the Wobblies um, where universal strikes creating a universal change in how people are, are dealing with the economy. As long as we have a Bezos that can fly into space and as long as we have um, all this crap that these people who control our economy are able to continue to espouse um, the trajectory will not change, and that's a given. And that's one of the things that I, I, I try to understand how we as a people are just so willing to go along with it. And yet, when I talked to that lady from Valley City, it was so disheartening to hear that young people coming into the world and becoming new voters and have no idea of a, where the economy is, where the money's coming from, what they're paying for, like uh, Dustin was saying, they, they have no, as long as you have easy credit, as long as you have a credit card, as long as you can get stuff, and as long as you can get your games and your newest iPad, and as long as parents continue to just stress sports instead of knowledge, and as uh, you're it's so easy to be um, totally distracted and complacent to the trajectory. 
Yeah. Well, I want to I want to speak a little bit into Dustin's idea about um, wage wage stagnation and easy credit. I'm looking at a headline um, of an article I read today. Full time minimum wage workers can't, can't afford rent anywhere in the U.S. According to a new report. So the methodology on this is that if you're a full time minimum wage worker, you know, no more than 30 percent of that income should go to rent because you have other costs, obviously. And so there's nowhere in the America <laughs> where if you if you're a full time minimum wage worker, can you afford a rent anywhere? That's ridiculous. That I mean, there's high minimum wages in certain parts of the country, but they're all there's not a single place where you can actually have a, an afford um, to have 30 percent of your income go towards rent if you're making minimum wage. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, and it, also insane is that people let themselves get to the point in life where they need to be paying for rent but still are on minimum wage. I mean, at some point, there's got to be some sort of motivation and capability, like we talked about before, um, so that people can get out of that wage in the first place and, and do something other than work at Burger King for 12 bucks. You know, uh, those those wages were never the minimum wage was not meant to be a forever wage for anybody. And somehow along the line, both at the corporate level and at the worker level, the mentality became that people can just sit there and both businesses can rely on somebody and just pay them the minimum wage forever and that the person themselves uh let themselves get to the point of relying on minimum wage forever. It's it's a dual prong problem. Yeah. So general strike time, I think, is what uh, Norton was saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I I believe that we have to uh, finally say to ourselves, "This is ridiculous." I mean, I I talked to my brother who lives in Seattle, um, and he said that uh, there's this great area in Seattle that he and I always used to hang out in, and uh, um, it's now nothing but tents and homeless and, uh, you know, and the homeless are tech workers because they can't afford to, uh, you know, so no man land, everything about our trajectory. Again, this is, I, I think that's the thing we have to realize is um, going into a worse place. We're, we're not moving into a better place. And the reason we're not moving into a better place is because we continue to, um, we, we, we continue to like our, our position as a, um, you know, we, we want to feel like we're superior. Like we feel that the United States is a superior place it doesn't need this crap of uh, taking care of elderly people or taking care of sick people or taking care of, um, you know, uh, poor people. It's a place where if you've got the bootstrap, you can get yourself up and get out of that minimum wage and get a great job somewhere when there are no great jobs except for specific areas of the country. The rest of them, yeah, well... They got to get along and they got to get along on credit. Like you said, I think I agree with you 100%. If there wasn't easy credit, there would absolutely be 
people that are saying this is bullshit. Let them eat cake is so real now. You know, like Bezos saying what he said, that's let them eat cake. Oh, thank you, Amazon workers, for letting me fly into space. <laughs> what a fucking asshole, you know? I mean, you know, that, if ever there was a... If ever there was a time for a general strike, it would have been when the government was had shut down 80% of the economy already. And it, you didn't have it then. So I don't see that ever happening in America because we're just not France. I think it's going to happen when there's enough disaster. That's We lost you, Ellie. But um, come. Try this. Yeah, I don't know what it would take for a desperate enough to do some pretty extreme things or not willing to do under other circumstances. Oh, I would think it could come. But you guys, I'll be honest. I really think of myself as like a neo-surf living in neo-feudalism. Like this is just how I understand the way that we live. It's kind of why I hate like Disney princess shit, because I'm like, give me a break. I'm not supposed to like admire like my rulers. Um, and so I think that <laughs> this is just the weird permutation of serfdom we live under. It's like the exponential growth model and debt model is like, that's our serfdom. And, I, you know, I'm definitely tired of it, not a fan of it. Um, and we will bear the brunt of any catastrophe, especially like the poorest among us. Um, so that really sucks. So uh, the more advantaged folks will buffer themselves from catastrophe eventually. But I think that if they're foolish enough to think they can live in outer space and they all go and do it, they all are going to die. And it's going to be pretty funny and ironic. Billionaires in space. Yeah, it became a thing this summer. I guess um, I guess respect to Elon Musk for staying on Earth and not having to having the ego to have to blast himself into space as a part of his billionaire wealth. But yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy. Um that that's those are the you know those are the headlines we have the 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 planet is on fire and the billionaires are, are shooting themselves in the space that was this summer that just happened remember elon is going to send a couple hundred people on one-way trips to mars to build his colony before he leaves so he's got the serfdom thing going actually even to a larger extent than the other two because they're just up there playing games whereas he's actually got a plan to create colonies and have surfs on mars 100 percent, absolutely yep. <laughs> See, so he's the smart one plus he's letting everybody else do the uh, but, you know but he's not he's not smart it's not going to work like it really isn't going to work like we're not we're not made to live under different gravitational conditions like our our even just our uh dna our code playing out correctly away from this planet is pretty dubious um so i think that it's it's like it's almost like a kind of hubris to think we're not dependent on the planet we sprang from we really can't bail this is this is our bigger organism this like big round thing we're on and like without it we're nothing and so i'm like go ahead rich boys go try your mars colony you are all going to die like i'm certain of it and so i don't think it's smart but i think he thinks he's smart that's how i look at it well, these guys are, I mean, if you look at everything that they are doing, they, they are trying to fulfill the prophecies of science fiction. That's what they're looking at. These guys look at science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars, 
you know, everything on down the line as prophecy as, as and, and, and that they are the fulfillment of that. It's, it's almost a religious type of thing. And, and I think that they do believe themselves to be the, you know, whereas uh, uh, the, the, the religious people talk about our, our martyrs and, and, you know, bring about, you know, the Armageddon and all that kind of stuff. These guys look at it from the, well, we're going to be the ones that built the colony and, and sent people out there. And, you know, what they forget is that most science fiction says that, like you said, uh, it's not going to work out too well. <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to throw in a plug for, um, well, you know, we, we, uh, for uh I, I read a book over the over the last year that um it's called red mars it's part of the mars trilogy by kim stanley and robinson it is the kind of uh science fiction that uh, dustin's talking about so they do send a col a, a colonizers <laughs> to mars and what happens is they, they um they turn into anarchists when they get there of course of course yes it's it's the utopia of of uh no rules of course. But where, where, like, where are they expecting food to come from? Like, like generating, <laughs> hum, what? Yeah, you have to read the book. I mean, he, this oh, guy, okay. the Kim Stanley Robinson is, is a pretty, he actually came to the writer's conference in, in UND a couple years ago. Oh, cool. Matt Damon already figured this out. Yeah. He's going to grow potatoes on uh, Mars. I mean, this is, they already figured that out. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the the book is crazy because he gets into the scientific details and to a level that you're like, uh, can we just skip forward to the plot part? But um, it's very well researched. Uh, so there, yeah, there's a lot of uh, you'd have to read the book. It's very long. Also, I assume that in order to get our genes to to uh, uh, survive on other planets, we're going to have to go through the eugenics wars that pretty much all science fiction writers uh, also prophesized. Yep, that's a part. That's one of the subplots of the later half of the book. I don't even know if it's eugenics because eugenics is more about a, a a belief in a natural selection that's sort of social and behavioral and 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 whatnot. But um, you know, like the getting the smartest people or the most capable people. But honestly, this would just be like genetic engineering because it's not natural selection. It's completely and utterly unnatural for humans to be capable of thriving in those environments and you'd have to be very unhuman to get it done. And there would be people who would be like complete disasters here on earth are the ones that would do well on Mars. So it's like a real freak show kind of uh, engineering of, of a, a new species, I would argue. It wouldn't be the same species. I mean, if you don't even have like the same basic internal temperature or something, it's like you're just a whole other type of intelligent life. Well, here, here's the thing about human beings is, uh, we always think that there's another place that's a little better than the place we're in. That's why uh, religion works so damn well, because I'm going to heaven. And heaven, when I die, I'm going to heaven. So hell, this is just, you know, this is nothing. This is easy. And so as long as we're cult-like in our uh, belief process, religion or whatever you want to say, you're always going to think there's a place where, oh, it's this. It's all going to work out for me. So I don't really have to do any work here at all. I just have to kind of make as much money as I possibly can. So and uh, and make sure that I'm secure and I'm a wage slave and I'll stay a wage slave. 
as long as I know I'm going to go to heaven. Now, to be fair, I'm not convinced it's a human thing. It's definitely a Western thing. It's definitely a certain economic framework thing. But um, I think that human nature can play out quite differently with different cultural frameworks. And I think that um, I think there are cultural frameworks that embrace making the best of what you have and not always looking to expand or, you know, in, in not in every direction, at least. I think there are more there are some philosophical and cultural frameworks that are inherently more sustainable and they're very human, too. I think the, the grass is always greener on the other side is a pretty universal human belief. There, there may be people in different cultures that uh, don't subscribe to that, but the cultures generally do. Well, their solutions are different. Like one solution is go find that greener grass. The other solution is learn acceptance. And that's what I'm talking about, that divide. So the learning acceptance is also a very human tradition and just not one that's particularly Western lately. Well, capitalism is what uh, drives our whole process in this country. So the culture that we deal in is a capitalist culture of, I need people to work so I get stuff and I need to work so I can get stuff. And I, you know, it's, it's, it, we're, we're, it's a capitalist society and there's no, and you're, you're, you're right, Ellie. Uh, I, I believe that there are cultures out there that can survive and be okay. But when you live in an exceptionalist elitist culture, like we are, it, it, it's really hard to deal with uh, just, sitting back and going, yeah, I'm going to relax. I'm going to be okay. So. Yeah. So, um, we got 10 minutes left. Um, let's see if we can transition here to some closeout thoughts, Jim, I want to, um, Ellie prompted you earlier about, um, how you speak to your children about, um, climate change and the future. I'd love to hear, um, if you have anything to, to share on that front, um, but feel free to do anything in your, in your checkout thought it, it, it um, you're so moved to do so. Um, I, I just wanted to talk about, you know, we've talked about uh, a lot, a lot of interesting things today. Um, and I, and uh, Norton, I put the link in there to that Washington Post article in the uh, chat here. Okay. Thank you. And Great. another very cool article about the guy that built the $30 million wall. Um, North Dakota. Oh, yeah, I, re I read that today. That guy's awesome. <laughs> The sure. he, walls. He, he, he's, he's my main man. I'm he's my main man too. Yeah. He's, he's so cool. I can't believe it. I, just, I bet I, he I likes Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that if you, can, if you can see through it, it's not a wall. It's a fence. Yeah. Oh, no, that. it's bike. Now it's a bike trail. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest we – what we've talked about a lot is how we change a mental model so we can move towards a, a new future. And right now we don't have any models to, to future to, to go into the future. We're just kind of repeating the same old mistakes of the past, you know, whether that's GDP or unlimited growth mindset or what have you. So I'm going to suggest there are three things uh, at least that we can start thinking about as a way to change the frame of our reference and to start thinking about an alternate future. 
The first would be um, jobs. I think uh, everyone that's a politician agrees we need more jobs. I would say I'm going to say we need less jobs, at least jobs that people do, um, more jobs that are automated or that computers do or machines do, but less that people do because there's so much associated waste and um, pollution that comes with all those jobs. If there was a way to get things that we needed to do done without people doing them and then taking that efficiency gain and sending it back to the people, I think there's a way to go into the future that's sustainable. It wouldn't be 100% different than what we're experiencing today. It would be similar to the life we have today, except uh, we'd have less pollution and we'd have less people working jobs. So I'd say jobs are bad, number one. <laughs> At least humans doing jobs. Let's let the computers do those jobs. Um, let's think about automation. So if I'm a union member, maybe I want I want to push towards automation. Maybe I want to automate my workers out of a job. But what I get in return as a union boss is uh, I get a universal guaranteed income for those union workers. So they get automated out of, out of a job, but now they have a way to uh, live for the rest of their lives. And they got to figure out what to do with their lives. I think people are pretty resourceful. They'll figure out something. They'll take up a hobby. They'll learn something new. They'll have freedom to flourish in ways they never had under our wage labor system, our slave labor system. Um, so automation uh, as a way to kind of liberate both the individual and the community uh, as we uh, try to solve this climate crisis. And then number three is universal basic income. I think it's, it's got to become a part of the conversation. It's starting to get out there. Um, if you can get people to you know, start to come around to the idea, maybe we don't have to grow every quarter by 4% or whatever. Uh, maybe we can just stay the same. Maybe we can just stagnate our degrowth. Okay, what does that look like? I think it looks like there's got to be some universal basic income so people can do the things they need to do to live and uh, get the water they need, get the food they need. Be able to have the lights on and live and grow and become um, you know, the, full, the fullest of their potentials. So that's what um, I think those three components, you know, that's a way to undermine what we've considered to be kind of the capitalist oligarchy, which is we can't even consider what's what would be beyond capitalism. I think those three things would be beyond capitalism. We just have to start talking and thinking about it first. And then uh, and then, you know, maybe a, maybe the disasters of the environment will push us towards it um, because it's the only practical way out. I don't know. But I think th that's part of the solution is to start thinking about those three things. And with that, I'll open it up for the rest of y'all to check out. So my first thought is um, just responding to you here. Uh, I don't know of any uh, literature that uh, shows that going to automation and making humans obsolete ends well either. So between the two options of going to Mars and making humans on Earth obsolete, I think I would take going to Mars. <laughs> I don't know, Dustin. My my goal at every job I've ever had was to make myself obsolete because that means the job's done. My job's done. You'd it, never make it in a union then. <laughs> no, exactly. You never will. <laughs> where you're perpetuating this job forever. That seems like a form of hell where the job I, never. I never, think you guys are kind of missing that there's always work to be done. This just changes the distribution of it and the nature of it. So it's like, it's just, it's like divorcing a very specific set of jobs from the equation and like not making it as formalized. So some people may just be epic volunteers 
and right. that they're doing real labor. So, I mean, there's humans will never be absolute or irrelevant. I mean, th- that doesn't even, I don't even know what that means. Like, you know, like, like humans are made to work. We are workers. There's just better and more fundamentally well-being promoting ways of doing it. But I, you know, if you want to go to Mars, that's okay. But I have warned you. I hope that you will take the warning seriously. I well, really I think, think you will die. You're right, Ellie. Um, it's, it's basically divorcing work from, from your um, life sustenance. So we have to work to live now. I would say you're correct. We'll continue to work, but it won't be so we can pay the bills and pay the rents and keep the fridge filled. It will be because there's still lots of work to do. So it becomes like care labor, like taking care of children and old people and um, you know, creating better bonds amongst the community. That that work's still out there. It doesn't get we done because we still need scientists and engineers. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different social roles to play. Like we still want modern medicine, right? So I mean, there's also some things that we are very familiar with today. Some models of training and expertise that they they should evolve and grow with what we need. But those there will still be disciplines. I think. I don't think that people can just dabble in everything. I think specialization will. It suits humans anyways. I think we're we're good at that. I, I see I see a bridge from today's reality, not really one that is, um, co- you know, collapsing a lot of the labor that we very much need. And we will need uh, construction crews, too. I mean, you know what I mean? I would... Um... I want to hear from Jim and, and Norton before we go, but I, the idea of generalization versus specialization, I think that's an interesting topic for a future podcast, Ellie. Jim, Norton, any checkout thoughts? You haven't made me feel any better, but it's um, it's impossible, to you guys. Was that the goal? I don't think that was a shared goal. <laughs> I think we uh, abandoned that in like episode four, Norton. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Well, that's why I check in. I want to hear some encouraging words. And uh, you, you haven't done that for me yet. Sorry. Just doing yeah. our best to tell it like it is. I get you. Ellie, I love hearing from you. Thanks. Um, are you are you done, Norton? Are you still going? Yeah, I am. Oh no, I'm done. I'm sorry. I was all right. Um, coming back to Ellie's question of, of how to um, approach uh, society uh, with children, um, I like to take the. Um, I guess it would be kind of a uh, Netherlands existential approach to it, and a little bit like Switzerland and the Netherlands together. And um, so I want them to know what they're doing and where it comes from and where it goes. So um, when we see garbage on the street, uh, I pick it up and they look at me and say, what are you doing? I say, well, I want to swim in the river. And um, that's where this would go. And they, what do you mean? Well, let's follow it, you know, down the little the stream of water and it goes eventually to a sewer and that sewer drain goes over to here and then we go down to the river and we see where the sewer drain ends up and you see all this garbage in there i'm like yeah that's from everybody in bismarck we threw the trash on the street and they're like oh my god i don't want to swim in trash so yeah i'm not going to do that and um same with lights and electricity every time they turn on a light i took them over to the coal plant and i said okay this is what happens you see all that smoke coming out and uh, my daughter said oh that's that's the cloud factory 
I said, no, they're not making clouds. Um, that's um, sulfur dioxide. That's mercury. Look it up. Figure out what's in there. And they look it up and they figure out what's coming out of there. And I said, every time you turn on the light, they're burning that stuff and putting those those into the air. And that's what we're all breathing. So that's why when, when you're not in a room, you probably want to turn the light off so that you can breathe a little better. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. And um, they see it. They put it all together themselves. I, I don't need to say anything. They look around and say, why are people so stupid? And why are we killing ourselves? And I say, yeah, good question. Hmm. Well, let's, let's not do it ourselves. And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's live consciously. So it's, um, it's an existential approach to stuff. And, uh, and that's like in Switzerland, you know where your money goes. When you buy a car, you pay for the process of uh, disposing of that car up front so that you're socially responsible for everything you do. And um, so that, that's kind of the approach we've been taking. And I mean, it does freak them out sometimes, but I just let them ask the questions and figure it out themselves. I, I guess one one thought, and Jim, you're, you're so right. One, one thought I have about... Uh, the American world we're in right now, or the U.S. world we're in right now, is why is it that so few people understand where stuff comes from? Understand that they that they need we need taxation to get stuff done, or if it isn't done, then it doesn't happen. And you know, cause and effect is so real, but it's so phantom to so many people. They just have no idea of, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna take this, I'm gonna, but they don't understand that there is a that they have to understand where it came from. I don't know if I'm making sense, but that that's the thing that basically drives me crazy is nobody understands the responsibility they have. The farmers make this argument about how kids don't know where food comes from. That's the whole farm to table movement amongst the, the farm bureau and those types, because so many people think that, well, it comes from the grocery store. <laughs> I think the ignorance increases consumption, which is convenient for the growth model. So, yeah. I mean, the less people know about the thing that they're consuming, the the more reckless they are with their consumption of anything, really. I mean, so it can be, um, you know, goods or it can be food. And I, I think that by people learning actually where things come from, um, it makes consumption more moderate and that undermines the growth model. Yeah, you're 100% right, Ellie. And um if you if you know the 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 uh, the tradesperson that made your little thing, um, just the knowledge of the person that it came from uh, makes you want to care for that object more. Versus, it just showed up in the mail. I went and got it from the store where there were a hundred just like it. Uh, then it feels very replaceable, and you don't have any connection to it, and you don't care if it breaks because you can just get another one. And that is part. That's part of the reason why they kind of disassociated the the makers from the consumers. Because once you know where something comes from, you're you're going to care for it much more. Now, isn't this a strong argument against automation? 
Well, it depends what you're automating. I would say like uh, like your job, Dustin. <laughs> we could uh, Uber driver. We could automate that once the autonomous driving go- comes. I'll, I'll I think sh- there's, there's the, room for automation, but like because it always liberates us for more. Like basically, okay, if you uh, like automate some aspects of like medical medicine, medical science. Um, then that liberates you to invest more, you know, time and labor into the very advanced aspects of medicine and, you know, medical science. So I think it's automation should never, we should never be afraid of it. I, I think we should embrace it, but realize that it um, is about um, giving us more time to do things well and, and to have leisure. I'm definitely on board with Ryan's request for humans. And I, Jim has made this request too, of the universe, more leisure time for us. Yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, it's gotta come with um, some goodies for everybody. Cause when, what's been happening is that the more we make something efficient, that just gives, um, gives you more time to do, to do more work. <laughs> you just get, you just get more work. You gotta get, do more work once something um, is automated away from your, your plate. And um, so it, it never ends, and, and we just worked and worked and worked to death, and um, and we like it so much um, <laughs> that um, part of it's psychological. Like we like that idea of uh, always having something to do. So we really have to disassociate identity and sustenance from our jobs, and that's part of the what the automation conversation should be about. Is like if it comes, then it needs to come with a benefit for all, and not just the the capitalists that figured out how to automate this or that. Have any, any of you ever read What Went Wrong in America? It was a book that was written probably around 1980, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, maybe late 80s. Um, but anyway, what they talked about in that book was two guys from the Philadelphia Inquirer did an analysis. And in that, what they argue, and I think they argue it very successfully, that at the point of all of a sudden our worship of money instead of product, which happened with the uh, venture capitalists, which happened with all these uh, people coming in, flipping companies, uh, the, you know, and what happened is we no longer cared about the product. We only cared about what kind of profits you could get out of the company that made the product. And so it, it was a completely complete shift away from, okay, I need a pair of shoes to, okay, this shoe company is not making enough profits, so I'm going to move it off to China. And that is really the crux of where we as a, as a country have no longer so what you're saying is automation is great blah 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 gives us more free time blah 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 but all automation is going to do in reality with our present trajectory is give the corporations more um profit back to the shareholders well yeah i mean norton we're specifically saying more automation but not with that we are specifically saying let's reject that but let's use automation to improve human life. So we realize that that's we realize that that's the the groove in the ground where you know in the river that's where we're flowing towards. We understand that, but we want to divert our path and try it differently. Um, and yeah, the 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 opposite of automation is craftsmanship, and and this is why Detroit is dead, 
And, and this is why cars don't last 30 years like they used to, because you, I, I don't think that you can have automation without the bads of automation. I mean, that, that's, I don't know how you get to that point I because just, I don't know automation created planned, obsol- planned obsolescence is the real problem. And automation makes planned obsolescence economically efficient. Can't you automate the parts that don't compromise craftsmanship? I mean, I think there's still something, and I we do automate certain things we didn't use to. I'm sure there's parts that can be made with the automation, but then, you know, integrated with a human touch. I think that um, being smart about where uh, the human touch is significant and adds a lot to the workers' enjoyment of life and the consumers' enjoyment of life. I mean, I think we, you know, we cultivating a culture that acknowledges that difference is key. But like, I'm someone who's seen okay, I've seen computing for statistics improve so much in my lifespan. I mean, even just my adult work life, like the the computing expectations I could have when I was an early social scientist, it just sucked. Like everything was so tedious and RAM consuming and it was really hard to get work done efficiently. And now it's incredible what I can do. And basically what is happening is that at different levels, like math is getting more and more automated for me. And I start to only do the fun theoretical part. And I I just think that's an analogy that can work for a lot of tasks where, you know, automate the stuff that is really tedious, but predictable and, and, and enjoy being the craftsman in modeling that, like coming up with where automation is ideal and where it's not, there's a craftsmanship to that, I think. Um, And I, I just, I have more optimism about its opportunity to be harnessed. And I think we do, we do want growth, not the un- unsustainable growth, but I think we want growth because growth means better medicine, better health care, like, uh, you know, things that um, I think we should be fighting for, especially to alleviate people with disabilities with particularly difficult experiences. Um, you know, so I, I want to grow in the direction of improving human life. And I think automation has a, a, has a role it can play without ruining everything, basically. The, the, the pro, with computers, what has happened, you can go back 20 years. 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a coder. If you were a coder, you were a programmer. Now there's a difference between a coder and a programmer. A programmer writes the program that helps somebody with less computer knowledge uh, do what they want to do, like what you're talking about. Uh, the the These... Uh, the, the people that make apps, the app developers are not as well educated in, you know, C++ as the old programmers were, you know, in 1998, uh, because they, it, the, the computerization has allowed for uh, the AI to take the role of the programmer who was in that situation, the craftsman of the code. Uh, and then in, in, in a more physical comparison, 20 years ago, when I was working on the assembly line at, in Fargo, uh, all the parts came from China, everything. It, the only thing that the humans did was put it together and, and it was designed so that uh, everything was automated except for the most mind numbing part of the job, you know, that, that had to have somebody line up the bolt. Um, 
you know, and all of that, that can be automated too. But the, the, I think this whole discussion about how, how to take away the, that job from a human while allowing humans to, to value that. I, I think that when you take the human out of the production model, pe- people will even be more in the disposable mode. It'll, everything will be even more throwaway. So instead of your iPhone only, only lasting three years, now it'll last a year and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, I think, think it, that, it depends yeah. on the role you see for the human, you know, I mean, if there, if the human is a, like a really intense quality control person who sort of, um, is, is attaching their competence to the release, like basically a worker who has a kind of social capital mm-hmm. for catching anything that's poorly developed um, trying to increase the longevity of the product. I think that um, there can be a human touch added in so many ways. I think we we forget how much has become automated over time. Like nobody's nostalgic for being uh, a clothes washer. Like who's nostalgic for that? I, I think that, you know, th- these gains um, can be channeled well. Um, I don't know, I guess, if you guys aren't getting what I'm saying so far, I think it's probably requires more uh, development. So I'll let that go at this point. Okay. I think I'm following you, Elliot, and I think it's a, a, a great point. Um, well, I guess so. It's basically a, it's a nuanced conversation because um, Dustin's point of view is also correct as far as the the crafts side of it. So there has to be a, there has to be a larger design philosophy, a systems thinking that removes planned obsolescence out of the scenario while increasing automation potential. But then on the back end, that those efficiency gains cannot be put forth towards more growth, but need to put back into the human capital. And uh, so that, that kind of high level system design that would have to you know make everything work, the, all the inputs and outputs work to, to actually create a flourishing society of humans versus um, businesses. Uh, I don't know where that comes from other than um, complete disaster and having to rebuild everything and, and, and knowing what went wrong the first time. Um, well, as, as, as long as we have 70% of our economy based on consumer spending, obsolescence has to be part of that program. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, if you if you want things made of of cheap plastic so you can buy it for forty dollars instead of four hundred, that's just how it has to be. I, I just don't know what you guys mean by obsolescence. The obsolescence of specific jobs, sure, absolutely. No, uh, the products jobs. that 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 are created, like compare, okay, uh, a washing machine from nineteen seventy eight that's green probably is still running now, but the red one that you bought from Lowe's six years ago probably is already dead. Oh yeah, that sort of thing. Um, I see. Okay, all right. Now, now I'm back. I'm on track because I was pretty confused. Yeah. So, so yeah, we live in this age of abundance, but the abundance is is programmed to die. You know, programmed to break. It's mm-hmm. it's programmed uh, abundance dis- destruction. Um, so so the economy goes forward and keeps to you know we can keep calling that growth. And you know a lot of the growth is what Dustin was talking about too, which is the finance capitalism side of things. Where the, the the innovation of the banking industry is not a credit card, which was but, the, wait. Can you explain to me though? I don't understand. I guess what I'm where I'm lost is what is the connection between 
automation and planned obsolescence as if like it's inherently like you guys are making it seem like there's an inherent definitive relationships relationship between automation and planned obsolescence and i don't buy that so that's I mean, why i'm confused the as far as physical products the more automation that's involved the lower the lifespan of the product is like, and but you, that doesn't seem inevitable to me. That seems like a product of engineering decisions made yeah, with design, kinds of cost savings in mind. I, I would argue that's what Ellie is saying is that's design thinking. But that's all driven by the, the research and development, which says that if we automate these jobs away and then we make it so that the iPhone has to be updated every year, then you can you get away with it. It, it starts to pencil uh, in your business plan. But if you make something that never breaks and that if I make uh, a million iPhones or a billion iPhones and they, they last 100 years, great for everyone except me. Right. <laughs> I'm on well, so the, the, the Kmart How do we get to that 100-year that iPhone that we, we, we probably can make a 100-year iPhone right now? They, there, are, there are phones, other uh, companies that make them modular. And so if you want to update and swap out your RAM, pull out the little chip, put in the next RAM. Right. If you want to put in the new processor, if you want the next new lens, pop it out, buy the new lens and put it in. Um, so it's, it's very much socially very irresponsible. We're planning obsolescence to, and it, and it is destroying the planet. It's really short-sighted. It's really stupid. And until the consumers demand differently or someone can stand up, but that requires massive amounts of education and conscious living. And people in America aren't into that. Um, in, in Scandinavia, they're into that to a mental degree of your mental environment where you cannot have a billboard bigger than you know, X number of feet. You can't take over public space with privatized mental pollution. And they really look at what are the messages of those billboards? Uh, you know, in, in Switzerland, they, they're the number one um, sort of like environmentally conscious, not environmentally conscious, socially responsible, fair trade supporters on planet Earth. So they're going to want to know where everything came from and where it goes. And they're going to talk about it. And my friends from Switzerland come to America. They they almost they almost pass out and they're in such complete disgust walking into these huge malls with this insane amount of air conditioning and um, environmental waste everywhere and people leaving the lights on everywhere and no consciousness of the effects and trash and no recycling and you know my friend saw someone throw a battery down oh, and, it's the and lost his mind he's like everybody in switzerland knows that lead in the water is horrible. Why would this idiot throw this in your storm sewer? And I'm like, hey, we're not taught that in school. We're not taught to look about look at life. We're taught to talk about ideas that have nothing to do with life. So it's a it's a whole revamp of consciousness. Walmart, uh, basically, when they, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Walmart came in and uh, basically destroyed the economy of all these communities. You know, it used to be before Walmart, you would buy locally, you would buy what you needed. You wouldn't buy based on price. You would buy based on quality. 
And when Walmart started moving into these communities, and again, I don't know if it's Walmart or just the time or just the way money was starting to, or the profitability of uh, companies changed at that point in time to coincide with Walmart. But all of a sudden, nothing was based on quality anymore. It was based on trade names and cost. So if you were a kid that didn't, couldn't afford Nike shoes and all your peers had Nike shoes, you had to have Nike shoes. And uh, why are people killing each other? Because somebody has an iPhone and I don't have an iPhone. So somewhere in that, again, 80s timeframe, we stopped looking at the quality of the product and we only looked at the commercialization of the product. And that's kind of, that, that's the sad thing that Jim's talking about is we as a country are so removed from the feeling of we have to be in a sustainable economy because we're elitist and we're exceptional in the world. You know, we're, we're all pissed off because we didn't get gold medals yesterday. You know, it's it's an exceptional thing, exceptionalism that is really hurting us as a country. Now, Norton, when you bring up Walmart, don't forget that they didn't do anything that J.C. Penney, Montgomery Ward, and Woolworth did in 1880. I mean, no, that's true. That's true. I mean, the the, the frontier expansion is what created the the extended supply line model rather than the local model now the 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 product model was uh those entities they they had local affiliates they didn't own the local store because they didn't want to own the local store they wanted to own the supply chain whereas walmart wanted to own everything you know, and that's the model that that changed. But there, this idea that Kmart and Walmart were reinventing something—no, they just expanded on what was already working for a hundred years. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I like that you brought up the Olympics, Norton. Um, I I love sports. I love watching the Olympics. The Olympics are a great example of uh, our infinite growth model out of control. <laughs> Every four years, we go somewhere else, build a bunch of shit for a month's use, and then it sits there and weeds take over and it never gets used again and uh those communities have a huge investment a huge windfall during the olympics and then a huge waste afterwards and that's the the rotating olympic experiment as a thing needs to end um maybe the olympics need to end if they're going to continue though they should be in one place well the ioc absolutely needs to end the ioc needs to go away or be in jail they're a criminal enterprise if I was uh, living in a city that was on the on the uh, list of cities for getting the Olympics, I'd be lobbying against it because it it is just a giant boondoggle uh, for generally uh, either for property developers yeah. who speculated on land and corrupt union construction. Uh, companies that are taking kickbacks from both sides. <laughs> now, Fisher would argue with you on that. <laughs> well, 
that's an entirely different ball of worms. <laughs> and they're really, really bad for uh, local poor residents, right? Doesn't it often yeah, uh, result in homelessness and displacement? Well, they sweep oh, yeah, people they off. Oh, yeah, they shovel them off. They, yeah. yeah, they get bulldozed away. Yeah, no, it's terrible. <laughs> and it's such a symbol for what's wrong right now is the the Olympics is a symbol for what's wrong. Um, but yeah, if we're going to continue with the, the global competition, a new organization is needed. And then this model where we keep going around the world has to end. I like traveling the world, but um, the, the, the amount of waste that occurs in these communities is just absurd. They used to repeat a lot more. Like Calgary's site was used, I think, three times. And it within 20 years and you know they back in like the 20s and 30s they seem to be a little bit more uh, uh resourceful with that even when it was in los angeles i think they use mostly the same stuff so it, it it's probably in the last 40 years where it's really uh gone off the rails i, I went to new orleans after the world's fair in new orleans saddest thing you ever saw i mean that mm -hmm. it was just junk everywhere and it, 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 nothing but hurt new orleans you know so yeah these things are for the developers they are for somebody you know somebody other than the people who live there well it's been an awesome call everyone thanks for your time this has been the No Name Podcast. You guys have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll talk soon. I feel really good now. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Mission accomplished. All right. We'll, we'll put Bye, a banner guys. on the aircraft carrier.